Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, the Liberals lose another candidate and blast the NDP for causing it. And they went further. Meanwhile, the NDP campaigned again in Brampton, trying to maintain their beachhead there. A former Toronto mayor excoriates the Tories for trying to build Highway 413. And some more good news for the Green campaign. It's Thursday, May 26, 2022, day 23 of the campaign, so let's get to it. Well, with only a week left in the campaign, the Liberal Stephen Del Duca has come out with a blistering attack on the NDP, and even more, he essentially accused the party of targeting female Liberal candidates. And to have watched day after day after day as the Ontario NDP have launched attack after attack after attack, questioning her integrity and her reputation, something that I think is deeply disturbing, something in fact that I think is appalling. John Michael, what's the story here? So this is the news that Audrey Festeriga is abandoning her candidacy in the riding of Chatham-Kent-Leamington. Uh, because it has passed the deadline for these things. Her name will still technically appear on the physical ballot in the riding. Uh, and I guess, I mean, early voting has started, so she will get some votes regardless. But uh, she has been uh, the target of attacks from the New Democrats who uh, allege that uh, her signatures for her nomination papers in that riding uh, were uh, essentially fraudulent. The NDP accused the Liberals of using the exact same signatures that were submitted for the candidate she replaced. Uh, just as a reminder, this is the second liberal candidate for that riding. The first was dropped by the party uh, when it emerged that he said some homophobic things on Facebook, uh, on social media uh, when he was a teenager. Separately from that allegation and uh, Festeriga deciding not to uh, remain on the ballot as a candidate, or I guess not to contest it any further, uh, in London North Centre, uh, Kate Graham, a very prominent liberal, she ran for the leadership race against Del Duca, uh, has been a, a, a a key member of the team since then. Uh, we've had her on uh, the agenda a few times. Uh, she tweeted out some polling uh, of her riding that suggested she was in the lead uh, in London North Centre, but was immediately criticized by uh, a number of people, uh, some media experts, others who said that the uh, poll was a, a push poll, uh, had no methodology that was disclosed, uh, and, you know, is showing a different result from what uh, other polling had suggested uh, that suggested the NDP were ahead. So, you know, two cases of uh, liberal female candidates uh, getting uh, criticized by the NDP. Uh, you know, Stephen Del Duca, probably the most uh, aggressive and angry we have seen him all campaign. Uh, he says the NDP have uh, said what he calls a, a bully targeting uh, female candidates. In his case, he's uh, calling Taras Natashak uh, that bully. Uh, Natashak uh, 
was an MPP in the last legislature is not running again. Uh, Del Duca says that this is he's trying to ascribe this as a, a disturbing pattern of the NDP uh, targeting female candidates and and has uh, you know repeatedly called it despicable in today's uh, announcement and said the NDP have uh, lost their way. Uh, he believes that this is the kind of thing that deters women from running for politics. I don't want to suggest here that Stephen Del Duca doesn't mean what he is saying. But, I mean, we are in the middle of an election campaign, or actually not even in the middle. We're closer to the end now, and there are obviously some politics behind what he is saying. So let's talk about that. What do you think that's a reference to? Well, there are two things going on here. One is just sort of banal politics. And another thing is, frankly, I think, um, more personal to uh, Del Duca himself. I'm going to say the first thing is, you know, just the, the dynamics of Ontario politics are that uh, for the Liberals to succeed, they need to suppress the New Democrat vote. And Del Duca and the Liberals have, you know, tried in other ways during this campaign uh, to uh, uh, attack the NDP. To, uh, they, you know, they've used this language before on other issues that the NDP have lost their way. Uh, basically, every time the NDP have criticized Del Duca, uh, he, he has responded with this kind of language, though not quite as angry as we saw him today. The second thing here. And this came out in the press conference. He was asked by a reporter whether he thought he or the party should take any responsibility for what has happened in Chatham-Kent-Leamington. And I think we should just dwell on this for a second, because the chain of events here is pretty clear. Stephen Del Duca pledged to recruit young candidates to the party. It turns out that young people say stupid things on social media. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Audrey Festeriga, I, I know very little about her personally. I've heard nothing to suggest that she isn't a, a conscientious uh, person who, who wanted to do something positive for her community. But there's a thing called the glass cliff, right, where we tap women to do hard jobs in a crisis and when something has gone badly wrong. And this is sort of a, a, like a classic case of this, where Stephen Del Duca messed up, the Liberal Party messed up, Festeriga stepped in, to try and help her party and her leader out. And because of the errors and, frankly, let's call it incompetence of the party uh, in the recruitment phase, she ended up in this situation where she's being credibly accused of a, a serious breach of elections rules. And like, yeah, this is this is politics. Uh, if we didn't want her to be in that situation, the thing to do was to have the paperwork be correct, not accuse the NDP of misogyny uh, after the fact. Well, and let's do a little bit on the dynamic of that announcement today, because Mr. Del Duca made two announcements today, one first thing in the morning, which we'll get to later, and then another in the early afternoon. Uh, and, and it was that one at which he made the attack on Andrea Horvath. And what was interesting was he wasn't asked about it. He came out, he clearly had something that he wanted to say. He clearly had a line that he wanted to put out there. And the line was, as you've suggested, the NDP has lost its way. And he made an announcement about something else. And we'll get to that as well, about higher taxes on well-off people. Uh, but, but he very much came to that microphone wanting to blast the NDP with a mission to blast the NDP. Uh, and did so before even any reporters had a chance to ask him about it. Then, of course, the questions came afterwards, and many of the questions were, is it really fair for you to say that this is a female thing, that this is a misogyny thing? They happen to be two female candidates, but can you really accuse the NDP of misogyny? I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but 
you know, I mentioned this uh, on Twitter shortly before we started recording that, um, you know, only a few months ago, the, the shoe was on the other foot here. The NDP were irritated by the fact that uh, the some of the early candidates that the Liberals uh, were uh, announcing, people they were very excited about, a star candidate like Nathan Stahl, uh, uh, many of them happened to be in ridings that uh, were represented at the time by New Democrat MPPs. Uh, and so, and it was male candidates, I'm thinking of Nathan Stahl, of Kareem Bardisi in, in Parkdale High Park. Uh, these are, are, you know, male liberal candidates challenging female NDP MPPs. And, you know, yeah, there were some new Democrats grumbling about like, hey, what happened to supporting female candidates? You know, this is hardball politics, right? This is what it means to challenge, uh, to, to contest an election. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't have much else to say about this, except that, it, you know, I, I don't think that it's a terribly... Um, productive accusation, let me put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back to earlier in the day, and we'll start our day in Brampton, where Andrea Horvath was talking health care. want to remind people that Doug Ford's choices are going to hurt you. They already have hurt you. I will always be on your side. I will always be making the choices that work for you. A very busy day, in fact, for the NDP leader. She went to Brampton. She went to Kitchener. She went to Fergus. Uh, she is really trying hard not to lose, lose that beachhead in Brampton. They had the big breakthrough in the last election, winning three out of the five seats there. Uh, as you look at Andrea Horvath on the stump, she is very upbeat these days. She is clearly feeling better and over the COVID-19 uh, that derailed her campaign for a few days. She's trying to seem very positive in her pitching, uh, which she did today, a three-year, $9.8 billion plan for ending hallway health care. Uh, she'd do that by hiring 30,000 more nurses and 10,000 more PSWs, finish Peel Memorial Hospital in Brampton, include a 24-7 emergency department, uh, acute care beds, uh, look into building a third hospital site as well, uh, a regional cancer site for Brampton as well. I mean, this is a big commitment to Brampton uh, because they are obviously hoping to maintain the inroads that they made there four years ago. And of course, these these comments of hers were made before all of the accusations about misogyny and targeting female candidates happened. So I don't know that she's actually had a chance to comment on that yet. Uh, one imagines that she will have things to say, if not later today, then tomorrow. Um, the, the leaders do find their ways in front of TV cameras around election time. Um, you, you did mention the the more um, upbeat tone of Horvath's campaign lately. Uh, you know, now that she's back uh, on the campaign trail after uh, her, her brush with COVID, uh, the NDP have also released a, uh, a pair of new ads, actually. Uh, one is a, a 30-second TV spot, uh, and uh, I, I think this gets to that, that tone we're talking about. Here's a clip from that. I'm asking people to come together behind the team that is strong, ready, and working for you. Now, aside from the tone of the ad, it's worth mentioning just how much money the NDP have had to play with in this campaign. Uh, they are spending to the legal limit this campaign and will be able to do that without incurring any debt. And I think this ad reflects that. Uh, they are not leaving anything on the table. Uh, the, you know, it, it's not easy to to uh, bring this kind of ad in late in the game. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been preparing to for this kind of thing to, to have a really strong closing message with voters. They also say that uh, they have more than twice as many volunteers on the ground at this time than they did four years ago. Uh, 
you know, just uh, this is one of those times that success can build on success, right? Uh, you know, they did really well in 2018, obviously did not form government, but, you know, largest caucus they've had in a generation, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we've already talked about the NDP and the Liberals really going at each other in the, the, the daily sort of grind of the campaign. But in this ad, there's only one person who gets named aside from Horvath herself, and that's Doug Ford. More people are going to see this ad than will pay attention to the daily press conferences or, or even perhaps our own podcast, Steve. Um, and, and I think, you know, the NDP really are making their message. This is about beating Doug Ford. Perish the thought that tons of people are not going to be listening to this podcast. Well, if I could make them, of course I would, but... <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Stephen Del Duca actually did six events today. Count them. Six events. We will invest in this. We will invest in our seniors. And we'll make sure that we can move this province forward, including for our seniors, so that Ontario is an ideal place in which to grow older. He was in Richmond Hill and Markham. Toronto Danforth, Beaches East York, Don Valley East, and Ajax, all in one day. No doubt the busiest day of the campaign in terms of the number of events. Uh, right now, with a week to go, it is as much JMM about location as it is about the issue that they want to feature. Richmond Hill and Markham, two York Region ridings. He, of course, seeking Vaughn Woodbridge in York Region as well, so important to have a good ground game there. Toronto Danforth, Beaches East York, those are two prominent Liberal New Democrat fights. Then he goes to Don Valley East, which is a liberal progressive conservative battle, all of those east of Young Street, incidentally, and then ending up in Ajax, which is Durham region, an open seat formerly held by the former finance minister, Rod Phillips. So, uh, wow, that's a, that's a busy agenda today. Right. Uh, clearly, you know, fighting for seats in Toronto and in the 905. Uh, we have talked about this, uh, perhaps ad nauseum at this point, but, you know, where the election is going to be won and lost, it, because that's where the seats are. Um, of course, Del Duca's morning started with uh, an announcement, uh, or I should say a re-announcement of uh, his pledge to get uh, for-profit corporations out of delivering long-term care, uh, wants to uh, basically no longer renew the licenses for uh, the for-profit long-term care homes, uh, wants to ensure an additional 400,000 seniors have access to home care within the next four years, prioritize non-profit care, uh, wants to boost funding for home care by a total of $4.4 billion over the next four years, and uh, boost old age security by $1,000 a year for seniors that need it. Now, what does all that tell you? All that tells you that the seniors are one of the most targeted groups in this election campaign by all the parties. Uh, they have policies aimed at seniors, not so much at youth. And the reason is obvious. Seniors vote in numbers that are disproportionate to their share of the electorate. Uh, also, their kids, like the kids of senior, if you've got parents in their 70s or 80s right now, you've got kids in their 40s and 50s and maybe 60s, uh, and they vote disproportionately as well compared to their numbers of the electorate. Young people, I hate to say it, young people, they basically don't vote. They vote in numbers that are dramatically underrepresented as their part of the electorate. And I've talked to campaign managers over the years who've said, we have put stuff in the window, we have focused on attracting youth, uh, we, we have, for example, post-secondary education. We put lots of policies about forgiving student grants and so on, hoping that we'll get young people interested. They always break our hearts. I remember that quote. They always break our hearts because they just don't come out to vote. It's not to say they're not politically engaged. They may very well be on issues of interest, but for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to show up at election time. It's, now, it's funny, though, the one exception to that is Justin Trudeau in 2015 really did benefit from a uh, 
you know, an ahistorical, or I guess that's not the right word, but an unprecedented uh, surge in youth voting. Uh, It seems to have been driven largely by the promise to legalize marijuana. They did that. And then the youth vote didn't show up again in 2019, because you can only do that once. (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Okay, um, we're going to go back now to that second announcement that Stephen Del Duca made, this time in Toronto Danforth with Mary Fragadakis, who's the Liberal candidate there. This is the one where he absolutely blasted the NDP. Uh, But before he did that, he actually made an announcement about tax policy. Right. And this is part of the uh, liberal platform. Again, a bit of a reannouncement, but uh, Del Duca promising to introduce a 1% surtax on corporate profits above $1 billion while eliminating corporate taxes for small businesses for two years, and also would introduce a new personal income tax bracket for the uh, 0.2% of Ontarians whose taxable income is over $500,000 per year. Uh, That 0.2% estimate is is the liberal uh, uh, estimate of of how many people this would hit. So obviously, the vast, vast majority of people uh, unaffected by that tax increase. We have not much to talk about in terms of the progressive conservative campaign today because they didn't do any campaigning. However, the PC leader, Doug Ford, is having a rally at Hamilton's airport tonight named after John Monroe, the former federal cabinet minister uh, from all those years ago in the Pierre Trudeau government. Uh, But there are two ridings uh, that, um, given that the um, PC leader is going to Hamilton, uh, I wouldn't mind talking about for just a second here. Uh, HWAD, as we call it in Hamilton, Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas, and Hamilton East, Stony Creek. These are two ridings held in the last house by the New Democrats. Uh, You probably don't spend time with a week to go in ridings like those held by your opponents, unless you think you got a shot at them, and I'm guessing that's why Doug Ford's going to the hammer tonight. Uh, the Hamilton East Stony Creek riding is particularly interesting. Uh, we, we've talked about this quite a bit before. You know, it's it's actually now a four-way fight. You've got the progressive conservative uh, Neil Lumsden, uh, who is a, a former Hamilton Tie Cat. Uh, I got that right, Steve. Right? I believe you do this time, John Michael. Last time I asked you what's a Tie Cat, and you didn't know. So I'm so <laughs> glad that you remembered this time. Well, you know, you pick some stuff up on on the campaign. Uh, there are, uh, of course, two. Uh, New Democrats there. There's the uh, official NDP candidate and the former uh, New Democrat uh, from the last legislature, uh, Paul Miller, who uh, represented the riding since 2007. Of course, our our listeners will remember that uh, he got uh, defenestrated from the party and uh, you know is now running uh, I, I guess he, he said he picked burnt orange as his color uh, so uh, in theory uh, you would not normally expect this to be a, a riding that the Tories could carry but with the NDP vote split like that it's just possible that uh, Neil Lumsden could be uh, the, the, the progressive conservative MPP for the riding. And don't count out the liberals. Uh, Jason Farr's a popular uh, Hamilton City Councillor and he's running for the red team there. So you got red, you got green, you got blue, you got orange, and you got burnt orange, which is kind of how Paul Miller feels about the whole thing, burnt by the orange team. And I say that uh, with full disclosure here, he's my second cousin once removed. Uh, We always like to get that on the record. Now, some very positive developments for the Green Party today. If we want to build a more caring society, it starts with supporting the workers who care for all of us. 
Uh, Green Party candidates, Mike Schreiner, of course, the leader of the party, and uh, Matt Richter, uh, who we've talked about a, a lot on this podcast, the, the Green candidate in uh, Parry Sound, Muskoka. Uh, they have both uh, received an endorsement from the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, which represents uh, workers in healthcare in the public sector. Uh, this is the first time ever that the SEIU has endorsed uh, Green candidates. Uh, just, I, I guess, for our listeners, you know, these are individual Green candidates receiving the these endorsements. It's not like the SEIU is endorsing the Green Party collectively. No, but it's part of a really interesting story about who Labour is endorsing in this campaign, in as much as we've already said seven private sector Labour unions have backed the progressive Conservatives in this campaign. And now we have two public sector unions uh, who are endorsing Green candidates. You're right, John Michael, not the whole Green Party, but two Green candidates. And normally the public sector unions endorse pretty much only the NDP. Uh, But the Greens have now won endorsements from two, the SEIU and the OSSTF, the secondary school teachers, which is very noteworthy. Now the question becomes, is five times the charm for the Green Party candidate in Parry Sound, Muskoka? And I ask that because Main Street Research has some new polling out from what has always been the safest of safe Tory seats in the province, and it does show a potential upset in the making. Uh, Matt Richter has uh, the backing of 43% of respondents in Parry Sound, Muskoka, uh, well ahead of the progressive conservative candidate Graydon Smith, uh, who has 36% support. Uh, obviously, some very unique circumstances here. There is no liberal candidate on the ballot. Uh, there is no former sitting member, uh, Norm Miller, the uh, previous uh, MPP from the last legislature, opted not to run again. Uh, We've alluded to the fact that Matt Richter is a bit of a known uh, quantity in the area. He has run many times. It's his fifth attempt to win the riding. You know, if this holds up, uh, the Greens could double their caucus size, which is not a a phrase we get to use a lot about provincial politics. They would be going from one MPP to two. Uh, We should also say, though, that, uh, and, and, you know, this sort of goes back to something we were discussing in the, uh, the, the unpleasantness between the Liberals and the NDP at the top of the episode, you know, riding level polls in Canada. Canada can be really difficult to do well, even if there isn't some, let's say, communications shenanigans going on. So, you know, if I were on Richter's team, and, and obviously I am not, but if I were on Richter's team, I would not take these results to the bank. It's, you know, this is obviously a positive sign, but, you know, I, I imagine that people in Richter's office are saying, okay, that's nice, keep working. <laughs> Exactly, because the election's not over, and as I always like to say, these polls are a great indication of what people thought yesterday. They cannot predict what people will do in a week's time. We have a long way to go, and and beyond that, a lot of people make their decision about who to vote for in the last few days of the campaign. So there may still be a great deal of volatility out there, and you got it right. If you're in Richter's office right now, no doubt the campaign manager is saying, don't inhale, keep your head down, keep knocking on doors. <laughs> That's more pot references than we usually get into this podcast. (laughs) That's true. Now, some more developments on the dispute over whether to build Highway 413 across the top of Toronto. A group led by former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, who, let me remind everyone, is a former progressive conservative federal cabinet minister. He calls the highway disastrous public policy and an historic betrayal of the public interest. 
Crombie says the 413 would slice through the green belt. That's just geographically a fact. It is true. Uh, it would enable the development of more and more car-dependent urban sprawl at a time when people uh, all over Ontario are crying out for walkable, transit-oriented, and affordable communities. Again, this is uh, you know a, a, the, the assertion from Crombie and his allies. Uh, they say it would cause uh, ever greater destruction and dislocation of uh, environmental assets such as watersheds, wetlands, and headwaters. Uh, gobble up some of the best farm land in the world, uh, waste scarce public funds, and again, the, the accusation uh, shows how the Ford government has a higher regard for the private projects of its friends in the land development industry than it does for the people of Ontario. And can I, I I'm going to just say one thing about the whole watersheds, wetlands, and headwaters issue, because the 413 is actually being subjected to a federal uh, impact assessment. Uh, and that's very, very rare. I think it might be unprecedented. Uh, and it, this will play out in court, probably. Um, but the, the the federal issue is specifically watersheds and wetlands and, and those kinds of things, because the federal government has almost no jurisdiction on things like highways or, or land use planning or anything like that. But watersheds and fisheries, in particular, the federal government has uh, jurisdiction over. And that seems to be where uh, the federal government is, is saying like, hey, actually, this highway could impact federally regulated fisheries. And that's where we step in. Uh, so we will all see how that unfolds in years to come. Uh, but I, what can I say? I, I, I had, my antenna were twigged by the, the, the watershed wetlands and headwaters issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you put that on the record because, of course, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau have been getting along famously uh, ever since COVID hit. And, and you have to know that Doug Ford is not happy about the fact that Justin Trudeau is sticking his nose into what is, as you've described it, overwhelmingly provincial jurisdiction by finding this little loophole uh, in in what uh, might be in federal jurisdiction to stick his nose in on the 413 highway. And I'm very intrigued to see how this plays itself out because um, if, if, if the prime minister wants to keep the premier, who may or may not get reelected, but if he does, on his good side, uh, you know there are going to be some backroom fights about this 413 and the premier telling the prime minister, get your nose out of this if you want to keep good relations with the biggest province in the country. And it is, of course, entirely possible that the federal government could some time in the future, uh, even under the, the Liberal Party, you know, they could decide that, oh, you know what, we've talked to our lawyers and we don't think we can win this fight and they could they could back off. Exactly. Long, long way to go on this story, that's for sure. And let's remind everybody, David Crombie used to be the chair of the Greenbelt Council. He resigned, along with many others, because of the current Tory government's policies on the Greenbelt. Crombie, I should note, was the mayor 50 years ago in Toronto. And even though he got elected federally as a Tory, he's always been a pretty nonpartisan guy. And may I add, he is still hugely engaged and really the go-to guy on so many issues dealing with the city that he used to be the mayor of. You know, when municipalities uh, or the province or sometimes even the feds have a problem they want solved and it requires somebody to come in and find the sweet spot of public engagement and buy-in, they go to David Crombie because he's good at getting that done. JMM, he turned 86 last month and shows no signs of slowing down. He truly is a marvel. 
you know, Crombie is still remembered by many in Toronto as, as the tiny, perfect mayor. Uh, he's not the world's tallest man, I'll put it that way. Um, but, you know, the kind of guy who could be remembered fondly by people who are today, you know, liberals and new Democrats. But, uh, you know, his, his time in elected office was as a, uh, you know, a card carrying conservative. So, you know, he, he really does have that kind of um, uh, broad reach uh, politically. Uh, but, you know, it's also interesting, the Globe and Mail uh, commissioned some polling about the issue of uh, sprawl, about, uh, you know, building new homes on farmland and in green spaces. Uh, this is something that uh, the progressive conservatives have uh, really, you know, pushed as part of a housing affordability agenda. But the public is is pretty uncomfortable with this idea. Uh, despite the housing crisis in Ontario at the moment, uh, only about 20% of respondents to a, a, a poll by Nanos uh, said that they were comfortable or somewhat comfortable with new homes in farmland or green spaces. Uh, a whopping 78% say they are either uncomfortable or somewhat uncomfortable with that kind of sprawl. Uh, you know, uh, for the sake of our listeners, I will say that, you know, the Greens are, I believe, the only party that have really unequivocally said that they would freeze the growth limits in Ontario's cities uh, so that uh, cities would be required really to build inwards and upwards instead of outwards. Uh, but this is something that whoever forms government after next week is going to have to deal with as a number of municipalities are considering whether to uh, expand their growth boundaries as uh, the, the PCs wanted them to when they were in government uh, or to to, to limit that sprawl or even freeze uh, growth boundaries. And of course, we have already uh, mentioned the city once before in this podcast, but uh, I'll, I'll just juice our quota slightly. You know that one of the cities that has frozen its growth boundaries or at least has asked to freeze its growth boundaries is Hamilton, right, Steve? John Michael, you're asking me if I know this about my hometown? <laughs> you're damn right I know it. And of course, we've done shows on it on the agenda as well. But yeah, you, you, you can bet that if it's going on in Hamilton, I hope I know about it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and in that case, I sure do. Well, that is our On Poly podcast for Day 23. A reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign right through to Election Day, June the 2nd. JMM, we'll see you on the hustings. See you tomorrow, Steve.